Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. All right. Good morning on this snowy day. Thank you for braving the elements to be here today. So this is our second week now in our series on the beginning of Jesus's ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, we looked at when the baptizer baptized Jesus, and this week we're looking at when the tempter tempted Jesus. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 4, which is right where we left off last week. Matthew chapter 4. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the joy and privilege of being able to gather to worship you um, and to seek you. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive whatever it is that you want to teach us today. Um, We thank you for getting us here safely. We pray for those who are on the roads right now for protection. And uh, for those who had the fortunately mild accident outside, uh, we pray that everything would be resolved quickly there. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So before we read this passage, I just want to remind us of where we were last week with the baptism of Jesus. In that moment, the one who did not need to repent received the symbol of forgiveness. And Jesus said that this was the proper thing for him to do, the appropriate thing for him to do. Because Jesus came to stand with and for sinners who need a new beginning. Jesus entered the waters of baptism not so that he would be cleansed, but so that we might be cleansed by those waters. And as he did that, Matthew tells us that the rest of the Trinity celebrated. Uh, The the Holy Spirit descended as a dove, and the voice of the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. So that's where we left off last week. And so remember, Jesus just heard the voice of the Father saying, This is my Son. Now Jesus is about to be tempted by the devil, and the devil is going to start his temptations by saying, If you are the Son, then do this. And in these moments, Jesus is going to have to remember who he is as defined by his Father, right? If, he doesn't ha- if he's not operating out of that place of security, knowing who he is, secure in his identity, then the devil is going to be able to play on any insecurity that may exist in him, right? So, let's see what happens when the devil tempts Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So before Jesus' ministry begins, he endures a time of temptation, or we might call it a time of trial. It's a little bit like going to boot camp before service begins. Jesus goes through a boot camp here. And part of what is happening here is that Jesus is reliving, or the fancy word is recapitulating, the history of Israel. We talked about this a few weeks ago. When the Israelites passed through the waters of the Red Sea, they then went on to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And so what we see here, right, is Jesus has just passed through the waters of the Jordan, and now he goes and he wanders in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, this is partly why Jesus is consistently described as fulfilling the scriptures throughout the Gospels. It's not only because he fulfills what is predicted, but it is also because he is reliving the history of Israel. He is restating through his life the main points of the history of Israel. Except where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. In fact, where all of humanity has failed, Jesus succeeds. When Jesus goes into the wilderness and faces temptation, he doesn't lose heart. He doesn't start worshiping idols. He doesn't grumble or complain. He remains faithful. So, let's go back to the beginning of the passage. I think this line is interesting. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I've, I've read this passage many times. I've preached on it before, but I never really sat with that sentence before. It stood out to me. And it got my wheels turning. And, uh, and so I started asking questions like, well, is this the kind of thing that the Spirit does? Lead us? To be tempted? Lead us towards the devil? Well, first verse that came to my mind as I reflected on that question is one from the book of James. James 1.13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So what's James saying there? Well, he's saying that when we find ourselves tempted to do wrong, we should not blame God for that. God does not try to entice us to sin. 
right? We can say that confidently. The idea that God would entice us to sin doesn't even make any sense, right? Because sin is, by definition, that which is against the will of God. So, we, we should never say, oh, I'm feeling tempted to evil, do evil, God must be trying to get me to feel that way. No, no. So, is what Matthew describes here inconsistent with what James says? Well, I don't think they are out of harmony with each other, because the one doing the tempting here is not the spirit, right? It's the tempter, the devil. And yet, the spirit here does still lead Jesus toward the tempter. So what do we do with that? Well, here's another relevant piece of information to consider. A little while later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to teach us how to pray. And he's going to teach what's called the Lord's Prayer as an example of what a good prayer is like. And you guys probably know that prayer. And you probably remember that part of it includes this line, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And Jesus is saying, that's a good way to pray. Right? When we pray, lead, lead me not into temptation, um, we're praying things like, you know, if we're an alcoholic, Lord, help me to stay away from the bar. Right? If we are uh, a drug addict, Lord, help me to stay away from those friends that I know are going to pressure me to fall back into bad habits. Basically, it's, Lord, keep me from situations where I am liable to fall into sin. And that is a good way to pray. That's a good thing to ask the Spirit to do. So, again... That suggests that the Spirit's normal mode of operation is not to lead us towards what tempts us. So how do we reconcile that with the Spirit leading Jesus toward the tempter? So here's what I would suggest. The Holy Spirit never wants to lead us into a temp temptation where we are going to fall. But... He does lead us into situations where we may be tempted if he knows that we are strong enough to withstand the temptation. He doesn't lead us into sin, but he does love to lead us into victory over sin. The Holy Spirit knows that when he leads Jesus to the tempter, Jesus isn't going to sin. Yes, he will experience the desire, the pull towards what the tempter is saying. If he didn't, it wouldn't even qualify as a temptation. But the spirit knows that he will not give in. He knows that the tempter will be resisted. And so the spirit leads Jesus to the tempter, not to find out who will win. He's not, this is not some game that the spirit is setting up and he's watching. He's, oh, I wonder what will happen, right? No, he leads Jesus to the tempter because he knows who is going to win and because he knows that Jesus is winning a victory against the devil on behalf of all of us. At least that's what I think makes sense. So, will the Spirit ever lead you towards temptation? The Spirit may lead you into a challenging situation if he knows that you can handle it. 
Okay. So, let's consider the significance of these three temptations. Um, and before, actually, before we get into that, I just want to say, did you notice that these aren't necessarily the kinds of temptations that we would expect? Like, it's not like the devil shows up with a wad of cash and waves it in front of Jesus' face or says, hey, that would be a nice thing to steal. Or do you want to go to the brothel with me? Like, he doesn't say anything like that. In fact, the kinds of temptations that the devil offers here, people could try to argue that they're not even really bad things, right? Turning stones into bread doesn't seem so bad. Performing a cool miracle, right? Jumping off of a building and having the angels catch you doesn't seem so bad. Bowing down and worshiping the devil, yeah, that doesn't sound so good. But, I mean, look at what the trade-off is, right? The devil offers all the kingdoms of the world, right? So, you know, what's the big deal about just paying a little lip service to the devil if you get all the kingdoms of the world? I mean, once you have all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus can do whatever he wants with them, right? I'm being facetious, okay. But, but you see what I mean, right? They don't necessarily strike us on the surface as typical temptations, as the worst kinds of things. Part of the significance of these temptations are that they are temptations for Jesus to be the Messiah in a false way. They are temptations for Jesus to be the Messiah in a false way. Here's Jesus, he's about to start his ministry, and he knows that if he does things the way that he's supposed to, he's going to end up on a cross. And that is the only way to bring salvation to the world. But that's not what the people want. The people want a Messiah who will provide abundant food. A Messiah who will do amazing signs. A Messiah who will quickly gain power over the whole world. And so the devil is tempting Jesus, give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. And what the people want isn't necessarily bad, right? Food is necessary. Signs have their place. And it is good for the Messiah to rule over the world. And actually, that is his ultimate destiny, right? But the Messiah has to do these things not the people's way, but God's way. The Messiah can't just give the people what they want. He has to give the people what they truly need. Even if opinion polls suggest that that won't be popular. And even if that means that eventually he will end up on a cross, which he does. So, Let's look at the individual temptations. Temptation number one, turn these stones into bread. Now, what would be wrong with doing that? Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. I like how it just says, matter-of-factly, he was hungry. I bet he was, right? 
Now, it's not that there is something inherently wrong with the miraculous provision of food. I mean, Jesus is going to do just that later in Matthew's Gospel, right? When he multiplies the fish and the loaves and he feeds 5,000 people. But these kinds of miraculous actions have to be done on God's timing for God's purposes. And Jesus knows that right now he's not supposed to be turning stones into bread. He knows that right now he's supposed to be fasting. Not because food is bad, not because miracles are wrong, but because that's what God wants him to do. And so that's what he's going to do. And that's why he rejects the temptation by saying, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? He is making the point, our souls need something more than just food. We need God. Right? You guys might be familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and at the base of the pyramid, it's like, you know, air, shelter, water, food. That's true, those are, those are all things that we need. But Jesus is saying, even below that foundation of the pyramid is God. You need God. We need a connection with our Creator, and we need to be living in harmony with the will of God. Think about it this way. If we think that we live on bread alone, if we think that food is the most important thing, then we're going to be willing to do horrible things to get food if we have to, right? If there's a famine, would we be willing to kill our neighbors to steal the little bit of food that they may have? If we think we live on bread alone and not on the will of God, then we might do something like that, right? But if we know that life comes not from bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God, then we're not going to resort to evil in order to get food. If we think that our life comes from food alone, then any leader who comes around and says, I can give you abundant bread, is the one we're going to follow, right? Even if they're evil to the core. Food is important. Yeah, of course. But we do not find real life through food alone. We need the words of God. And this is a little bit of a side, but... Um, you know, this is why church is supposed to be more than a soup kitchen. And I don't want to be misunderstood there. Soup kitchens are wonderful things, and that is part of what the church is called to do, to care for those in need, including caring for physical needs, food and shelter and water. That is a beautiful thing when the church does that, right? But it's not everything that we're supposed to do. If it was, then Jesus could have just gone around turning stones into bread. Mission accomplished, right? We have a spiritual hunger that is just as important as our physical hunger. And a huge part of what the church exists to do is to point people to the one that can satisfy the spiritual hunger. You know, if tomorrow every church said, you know what, we're shutting down, and we're using all the resources that we have to address world hunger. But we stop teaching, we stop preaching, 
We stopped proclaiming the risen and resurrected Lord. We stopped worshiping. We stopped singing. We stopped celebrating communion. Then the church would no longer be what it is supposed to be, right? Because human beings do not live on bread alone. They need more. They have a spiritual hunger. Okay, uh, let's look at temptation number two. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So the, the devil is asking Jesus to prove that he is the Messiah with a stunt, right? With a very public display of power. Now, Jesus, of course, did do miracles. He did many miracles. But usually those miracles were to help alleviate suffering, right? Or to help people understand the nature of God, right? He healed diseases. He cast out demons. But the devil here says, hey, if you really are the son of God, prove it with a reckless stunt. Entertain me. Be like a circus performer. But Jesus knows that if he does this, it will be dishonoring to the Father. It would be, as he says, putting God to the test. In other words, it would be demanding that the Father protect him from an unnecessary, reckless act. Now, Jesus is supposed to be our model for what an ideal human is like. And he also helps us in being that ideal human to see how we're supposed to relate to our Heavenly Father, to God, right? And here he shows us that demanding God's protection for our recklessness is not the way that we're supposed to relate to God. I remember um, <coughs> when I was a kid, I had a friend that would always say, Jesus is my seatbelt. And then he wouldn't wear a seatbelt, because Jesus is his seatbelt, right? Um, and I think that attitude is part of what Jesus is warning us against here, right? The attitude that says, well, because there's a God who cares about me, I, I don't have to be responsible. You know, if we take that way of thinking to its logical endpoint, I don't need to lock my doors. Jesus is my lock, you know? Uh, I don't need to brush my teeth. Jesus is my enamel. <laughs> I don't need to go to the doctor. Jesus is my doctor. You know, by that logic, we should be petitioning the town to shut down the fire department. What do we need the fire department for? Jesus is our fire department, right? But that's not the way that God wants us to relate to him. He doesn't want us to put him to the test. And Jesus models that. For us. He wants us to be responsible. Yes, Jesus says, do not worry about what you're going to eat or about clothing and that sort of thing, the basic necessities. But that don't worry doesn't mean don't take responsibility. There's a difference between the two of those. 
Our lives should not be consumed with this obsessive thoughts of how am I going to have enough money? How am I going to get the clothes? How am I going to get the food and the water? But we should still take responsibility. Something else that I think we should learn from this temptation is that proof texting is not a good way to read the Bible. So proof texting is when we pick one verse in isolation. We don't consider its context. We don't consider what goes before or what goes after or where it fits in the story of redemption. We just pluck it out and we say, here it is, the word of God. Because the devil proof texts here, right? He quotes the Bible. He quotes it to argue that Jesus should jump off a building and have angels catch him. And then Jesus uses another verse to, help, to show right, that that's not a wise use of that verse. And what that should help us to recognize is that if we proof text verses, we can argue for all kinds of things that we should not be arguing for like jumping off of buildings, right? Through proof texting, we can try to defend slavery, the mistreatment of women, acts of terrorism. The devil loves proof texting because then he can make the Bible say whatever he wants to say. Good theology is built on more than proof texting. Good theology understands verses in the light of the larger story that the Bible tells. You know, we understand this when we read just about anything else, right? If you're reading a story, like the Lord of the Rings, right, you know that you can't appreciate the full meaning of any particular sentence if you just lift it out of the middle of it, right? And we have to have a similar attitude with the scriptures, right? Good theology is built on more than just proof texting. Now, I'm not saying there's no place for quoting individual verses. Sometimes that is appropriate, right? But when you're really building your understanding, right, be careful about just, oh, we'll just take this one verse, no consideration about the book it's a part of, of the context it's a part of, where it fits, okay? All right, last temptation, number three. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, this temptation is what we might call the temptation to use bad means for a good end. The temptation to use bad means for a good end. Jesus reigning over all the kingdoms of the world is a good thing. Not only is it a good thing, it is his ultimate destiny. The scriptures say that there will come a point where Christ is all in all and everything in creation is subject to him. But God's plan for how Christ becomes king overall does not use the devil's means. The devil's means are things like violence, terrorism, lying, propaganda, stealing, bribery. If someone is seeking power and influence, there is an enormous amount of pressure to resort to those things. 
And there could be an attitude that says, well, it's okay because the end is good, because then I'll have power, or then we'll have power. In this exchange with Jesus, we see the devil putting this pressure on him to resort to his means to get the job done. But Jesus knows that if he resorts to the devil's means, he has already failed. Because a Messiah who achieves power through the devil's means is no Messiah at all. And so he resists the devil. And we see him resisting the devil, of course, not just in this exchange, but throughout his entire ministry. Right? He never raises an army to conquer for his kingdom. He prays for his enemies instead of killing them. Even as they are killing him, he prays for them. He tells people that the kingdom of God is like a, a seed, a little seed that grows, right? In other words, God's way of bringing his kingdom requires patience. It doesn't just show up like, I'm here, right? It starts small, humbly, and you have to be patient. And the devil says, patience? That's no way to get anything done. Right? But God says, no, 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 trust me, have faith, be patient. As followers of Jesus, I think we can learn from how Jesus responds to all three of those temptations. But this last one, I think, is especially important. You know, a lot of Christians, especially in this country today, we can feel like we're losing power, right? Church attendance is down. People are less likely to identify as Christian. Um, Christians have less cultural influence than they had in the past. And so, in the midst of that, there is a temptation to try to attain influence and power through worldly means. You know, by obsessing over politics or making fun of people we disagree with or... Even in some circumstances, it could mean resorting to violence, right? Or people thinking that that's a justified way of doing things because the situation is so dire, right? But we need to remember the true kingdom of God does not grow through insult or violence or worldly politics, right? The kingdom of God grows through the people who patiently follow Jesus, it grows through acts of love and service. It grows through the proclamation of Christ risen and crucified, right? It grows through things like hospitality and prayer. So, let's follow Jesus' model. Let's worship the Lord only. And as we do, the devil will flee. Amen? Lord, we thank you for the way that you modeled resistance against the devil here. Help us, Lord, to take your example to heart. Um, help us not to be deceived. Um, Lord, we really need wisdom in this fallen, messed up world um, 
for what it, what it looks like to follow you faithfully. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue to reflect on this passage, maybe throughout this week, that you give us deeper, deeper insight, Lord. Um, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.